0: Long before singer Cyril Amé spent any time on the road, she was already a citizen of the world. She grew up in the small town of Samois sur seine in France, but says that she never really felt fully French. She never really felt fully anything. Her mother is Dominican, her father is French, and she says that when you're a mixed culture, you're kind of your own thing. Welcome to The Third Story. I'm Leo Sidrin. I believe in the old adage that says, wherever you go, there you are. It's the self, not the space, that defines us. That's why you can really be from anywhere, and you can really be anywhere, and still make a large contribution everywhere. Then again, some places seem to be enchanted.
1: Samois,
0: à moi. samois might be one of those places. It's very small, but in the 1990s of Surreal's childhood, It did have one claim to fame, because it was the town where the legendary French gypsy jazz guitar player Django Reinhardt had retired. And the town hosts an annual jazz festival in his honor. Musicians and fans alike descend on the town for the festival every year. And because of the ties to Django, some of them are gypsies. Riding her bike through town one summer day, Surreal had a chance encounter with some young gypsy kids that would ultimately change her life. The Manouche, that's what the French call the gypsies. They taught her to sing, taught her to perform, taught her to improvise, and to see improvisation as not only a musical pursuit, but also a kind of life goal. They taught her that wherever you go, there you are. And today, Samoa Sursen boasts two claims to fame, Django and Surreal MA. This is her song Samoa et Moi from the 2010 record Just the Two of Us that she recorded with her Brazilian guitar virtuoso friend Diego Figueiredo. She was in her mid-20s when she recorded this.
1: Tu es si loin Tu me manques tant Parfois je me demande Si je pourrais durer encore longtemps Cette incessable folie me hante Mais je sens Qu'un jour on se retrouvera Ça
0: Despite the nostalgic romantic feeling of the song, by the time she recorded Samoa et moi, Surreal was already putting in time in the densely vibrant scene of New York. Here she is at Small's Jazz Club that same year singing the Thelonious Monk composition I mean you.
1: You know who? I mean you. I ain't got out to be the the I'm talking about I tell you know. You, you, you.
0: To watch Surreal perform is to watch a kind of ecstatic manifestation. She's very physically engaged. Her whole body's involved. She says that music was originally an extension of dance for her and that because her instrument is her body, dance is still a vital part of singing for her. And that Physicality is part of her charm. She's a natural performer. But she's also, and I hope you'll forgive me for saying this, please don't turn off the show. She's hip. She's naturally in tune with the language of jazz, of bebop, of funk, of soul, of ballads. She can deliver a lyric and make you feel like it belongs to her. And she's also a fantastic, precise, and fluent scat singer. Her solos are the real thing. She's technical, but she's also very soulful, and it's hard to do that. <laughs> Surreal won awards and got accolades along the way. She won the Montreux Jazz Festival Competition in 2007. She was a finalist in the Thelonious Monk Jazz Competition in 2010. And she won the Sarah Vaughan International Jazz Competition in 2012. Her 2019 album, Move On, featured cover versions of songs by Stephen Sondheim. And the song Marry Me a Little from that project was nominated for a Grammy.
1: Marry me a little, do it with a will, make a few demands able to fulfill, want me more than others, not exclusively. That's the way it ought to be. I'm ready.
0: And recently, a live stream video of Surreal on Emmett Cohn's YouTube channel has racked up millions of views, but I get the sense that those are not really the metrics that matter to her. The life of any musician, particularly an improvising musician, is often non-traditional. The physical, emotional, psychological, and economic demands are unique and specific. Maybe that's why so many musicians live unusual and, frankly, interesting lives. So I suppose it should not have come as much of a surprise to me when Surreal logged on to our Zoom call earlier this summer from the middle of a jungle in Costa Rica, where she's been spending much of her time when she's not on the road, or in her other newly adopted home, New Orleans. We spoke about her childhood in Samoa, what she learned from the gypsies, moving to America, sleeping on the floor of Fat Cat in the village, how to learn new languages, the importance of confronting and overcoming fear, especially as it relates to creativity, how to be honest with the audience, and where to find good cheese. Surreal released two albums in 2021, Petite Fleur, recorded with Adonis Rose and the New Orleans Jazz Orchestra, and I'll Be Seeing You, a collection of duets with the guitarist Michael Valianu, including this one that you hear behind me.
1: And when the night is new, I'll be looking at the moon And I'll be seeing you
0: Visit third-story.com for the full archive, hundreds of conversations with improvisers and creative thinkers, including other brilliant singers like Kurt Elling, Madeline Peru, Becca Stevens, Janice Siegel, Michael Mayo, Lauren Henderson, Stacy Kent, Kat Edmondson, <gasps> Achinom Nini, Duchess, and it goes on and on. A couple of other related recent episodes with Emmett Cohn and Jake Sherman are also worth checking out. Surreal has been working with both of them, and we talk about it here Patreon.com slash thirdstorypodcast is the place to throw in a few coins into the wishing well of this project. And, of course, visit wbgo.org slash studios to check out all of their award-winning content. The Third Story is, of course, a partnership with WBGO Studios, after all. Here's me in Brooklyn talking to Surreal M.A. in the jungle of Costa Rica earlier this year. In every
1: lovely summer's day
0: Hello. Uh, hi. Hi. You are really in La Selva. You are in the jungle.
2: Estoy en La Selva de Fijo. <laughs>
0: Incredible. Surilame, Ame, tell me, why are you in the jungles of Costa Rica right now?
2: Uh, it's a long story. It started eight years ago. No, more than that. Maybe 10, 12 years ago, uh, I met uh, one of my best friends who I went to college with. Her name is Maria She's Costa Rican, and after college, she came back to her country. And I came and visited her, like, every winter. After a few years, she fell in love with Tarzan, literally, and moved to the jungle with him. And every time I came and visited, I felt incredible. It's really, I don't know if you can hear, but the river that is, goes through this land is, is healing. It's a very magical place, and I fell in love with the land, and a couple years ago a month or two before the pandemic i bought a piece of land with the idea of maybe you know st- building a little cabin and building it little by little every time I, I come over every year and then the pandemic kept going and kept going and kept going and the little cabin became a house <laughs> and so yeah i designed and and built the house and and it's maybe 80 percent done so I came here to see what it looks like during the rainy season.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I'm really glad I did because we're we're gonna need to put a little more walls.
1: <laughs>
2: it's very wet and it's mostly open. So but I designed it all and, and so I kind of learned as I went, because I'm not an architect.
0: I like that you, you came to visit the house and you said we're gonna need more walls. <laughs> Maybe if you were an architect maybe there would be more walls already. Maybe not. You you never know.
2: <laughs> I like the feeling of feeling like I'm outside all the time.
0: When people ask you where you live, do you have a a fast answer for that?
2: Not a fast one. I mean, I I guess I would say New Orleans. I can't live here yet. There's the house, you know, is not finished. I mostly live on the road, but I would say New Orleans.
0: Yeah. So that is a pretty fast answer then. Yeah. Let's go, rather than where you live, where you're from. I want to talk to you about the trip, the journey that you've been on. And uh, I'm sure you've told the story many times, but I hope you'll indulge me and, and tell it to me here today, too.
2: Of course. I was born in France, in Fontainebleau, close to Paris. I mean, two weeks later, I moved to Cameroon. My first, my baby years were in Cameroon, Africa. And um, then came back to France and lived in Samoa, a little village. Uh, where Django Reinhardt used to live, and where he's buried, and where there's a Django festival. There was a Django festival in his honor every year. And I have to give a short answer, because I did a lot of back and forth moving. I I lived in Singapore. I lived in Germany for a few months. I lived in Mexico with my parents. I lived in America, in New Rochelle where my sister was born, uh, but went back to France. And my mother's from Dominican Republic, and I also lived there. The short of it, I think I lived mostly in France. I grew up mostly in France. And uh, being in that little village is what brought me to music, really. Even if from a very early age, I loved music. My mother's, you know, from the Caribbean. So there was always music in the house. But for me, the, my relationship to music was to, for dance. Music mm. was meant to dance.
0: Music was meant for dancing. That was the function of it.
2: I just love groove and rhythm, and, and that's, I think, my, my Latin side. And then I went to the festival many, many times, but was not interested in the music, really. I just went because they had Nutella crepes and, you know, and it was free for kids. But it's when I became friends with them that I understood their music because I understood their culture and how closely related their culture, their, their way of life is to the way they make music. You know, they, they, they really are people that live in the moment, mm-hmm. in the present moment. They don't know where they'll be a week from now. And their music is the same. It's very in the moment, it's very improvised. And so that's how I fell in love with improvised music.
0: Well, I have to admit, that's why I asked you the question, where do you say you live? Because I understand that you've been seduced by the idea of the improvised life or improvisation, mm-hmm. not only as a form of making music, but also as a way of living. And I was curious to know if you would say something like that when I asked you where you live. Of course, that's a, a very heavy way of getting there, but I appreciate that you told me that story. What did it mean to make friends with the Gypsies, with the manouche? Well, like, what does it mean to befriend them? Is it possible to come from the outside and, and become accepted?
2: I think when you're a kid, probably easier. You know, they, they are not, it's a very insular community. Uh, For many reasons, you know, from both sides, kind of Uh, from the, you know, the the townspeople of my village, it's a very small village, 2000 people, Mm. cobblestones, a lot of old people. And so, Mm. you know, from their point of view, it's like, ah, the gypsies are back in town, lock your doors, you know. And from the gypsies point of view is they, they're a, a, a community, a culture that has been persecuted for generations. So they kind of stay amongst themselves. And I think what made me click with them is the fact that I wasn't a hundred percent French. Yeah. You know, they, they have a side that reminded me of the Dominican side,
1: mm-hmm.
2: very raw, very, you know, like I said, very in the moment and very real, you know, they, they never had to raise their hand to go to pee, you know. <laughs> and so, you know, when you're a kid, when you're 14 years old and you meet, meet kids that have, that don't even know what homework is, it's like the coolest thing ever. And so the way it happened is I was, I was on my bike on the, the Laplace, which is like the center of the town. And this little gypsy girl comes to me. Her name is Smurfette, which is Smurfette Smurfette.
0: Her name is Smurfet.
2: Yeah. They have crazy weird names. Uh, and and she she asked me something, but they have a really thick accent, and I couldn't understand it. And I made her repeat three times. She was like, "What's that, player? And then I understood that she wanted to borrow my bike. So I was like, "Sure." And at that point, as, when I said sure, she like called up two of her cousins, and so the three of them got on the bike, and I was like, "Ooh." Yeah. And then they're like, "Come on!" And so I got on the bike too. And we went down this hill that's like, like this, and at the bottom of it is the river, the river sand. And we like, yeah, almost crashed into the river, and then, you know, then we're friends forever. Yeah. And so at the beginning, it was kind of, it was funny, because when I w- started going to the campsite, they were all fighting for who gets me in their caravan, you know. No, you've been enough over there, now come over here. And then they're cleaning and talking to me and gossiping. It's very also, women stay on one side and men stay on the other side. Yeah, And the men were the ones with the guitars. So I started going, hanging out with the brothers. And then little by little, more like becoming really, really friends with them. And then the townspeople started telling my parents, we saw your daughters hanging out with gypsies. Be careful, you know, they're they're criminals or whatever. And so I was not allowed to hang out with them. I had to escape from my bedroom window, climb down the stones of my house, cross the backyard, hop the fence and go through the forest to to go to the campsite at night where they would be playing like 12 guitars around the campfire, Mm -hmm. the women cooking, kids running around and just like. I was really obsessed. I started even like having their accent. (laughs) That's when my parents were like, no more. (laughs) And little by little, my parents, you know, when I started uh, to sing with them, Little by little, my parents saw that there was nothing they could do anyway. Hmm. And then they started coming to my house and hanging out. And now my parents love them. They're like family. Then they would line up with their shampoo and their towels to to come take showers in the house, you know.
0: So are you still in touch with this same family?
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: But you tell a story about how one day, I guess maybe it was the first season that you befriended them, you... Rode your bike to go hang out with them as you had been doing every day or, or every weekend or whatever it was, and you discovered that in the night the camp had been lifted and moved; that it was that time happened to move every on. year,
2: every summer. They would come for you know for the whole summer, and then one day they would leave, but no one would know when. And it was just like, "Okay, see you tomorrow," and then tomorrow they're gone.
0: Hmm. So when you were singing with them. Like what was that experience like? Did they teach you the songs? Was it more just collective? You learned them by being there. What was what was the communication around music like?
2: At first, so Smurfette's brother Lumpy, he gave me a guitar, and he gave me a guitar, and he was teaching me kind of the jangle chords, yeah. which there's really kind of three of them, you know, because the fingers are very. He can. He only has these two fingers, so he was teaching me the like the two five ones basically.
0: So everybody plays, voices it the way Django voiced it, and Django was missing fingers, so everyone has to play as if they're missing the same fingers that J- Django yeah. was missing.
2: Basically, the neck, they use the thumb, yep. because he he couldn't really do, yeah. like, barred chords with yeah. the little...
0: With the third, he, yeah.
2: yeah. So he was using the thumb, and so, they, so he was teaching me that method, yeah. and in exchange, I was teaching him how to read, and one day, his big brother, who was, like, the virtuoso... Guitarist of the family, his name is Dallas. He asked me, "Hey, can you learn this song? Uh, I want to play it, and you, you, you know, you know a little bit of English." Hmm. And it was a song called "Sweet Sue."
1: Every star above
2: knows the one
1: I love, Sweet Sue, just you and the moon up high knows the reason why, Sweet Sue, it's you. No one else, it seems, ever shares my dreams Without you, dear, I don't know what i do In this heart of mine You'll live all the
2: time Sweet,
1: Just you
2: And so I learned a song And one day it was raining And we couldn't all fit in the caravan So there was this this bus, like, the bus of my hometown Who was, like, parked there And so we all went into the bus we could hear the rain on the bus, and he asked me to sing, and it was just, for me, so special. You know, there was so much more connection than when I was had to look at the guitar, mm-hmm. and, and I could see everyone smiling, and it just, I was like, okay, I want to do this forever.
0: Is that the first time you remember, like, really singing in that way?
2: Singing in front of people. You know, yeah. I always sang like with, with the radio and my yeah. mom was always, always like, oh, you have a nice voice, you know, and I knew every song by heart. And every time after a movie, since I was a baby, every time we would watch a movie after the movie, I would go to the piano and like play the theme song of the movie. You'd find it. So I, I always had music in me, but that was the first time I, I sang in front of a, an audience and felt what that did, you know, Yeah. how powerful that is. And so after that, I wanted to sing more. So and all I knew was Django. So I started looking for songs with lyrics in the Django repertoire, which there are not many, you know. So I learned. I learned after you've gone. After you've gone and left me crying. After you've gone, there's no denying.
1: You seem blue. You feel sad. Mister never. There'll come a time, now don't forget it baby There'll come a time when you regret it Someday when you grow lonely Your heart will break like mine You want me only after you've gone Oh, this
2: And I was kind of stuck, (laughs) and then one day Someone, and I don't even remember who, but someone gave me a four-CD box set of Ella Fitzgerald, and I learned every single note on those four CDs.
0: I mean, if you were given an Ella Fitzgerald box set, not only did you hear songs with lyrics, but you heard scatting. Yeah. And I suppose if you were just internalizing all of it, then as you're learning the songs, you're also learning... Oh, yeah. The sound of scatting at the same time.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: What did you make of that? What did you think she was doing?
2: I had never heard anything like it. And I, what came through to me, tense joy that I can hear through Ellis singing, just like she's just playing, you know? And so, yeah, I started learning the repertoire, which is what took me to, to the United States, you know, the, the, the American songbook. That's when I realized I wanted to learn more of that and where that came from.
0: Yeah, you know, the thing about the repertoire, I think it's really powerful. I think there's a lot of information in the repertoire. And you can learn so much by listening to those songs and the way they were interpreted.
2: And also, they're they're a language. It's a language. Because you learn these songs, and then you can play with everybody Mm. around the world.
0: Mm. Yeah. After Ella, who else did you get into scat-wise that was, like, you know, an influence for you?
2: After Ella having learned all her solos by heart i had very much kind of you know her energy when i was scatting very like very like yeah you know bubbly and then one day i heard chad baker scat yes and it totally mellowed me down yeah it was such a lesson how precise how clear and how intentional you know everything is <laughs> and also from Bobby McFerrin just how free he is
0: That's, I guess, one of the questions I I ask myself when I hear you scatting and recordings of you singing and scatting so young because it is a language and it's almost like, I don't know if maybe some people just understand it more easily than other people or they feel that it comes more naturally to them. It seems like it was a very natural fit for you to improvise through the language of scat.
2: I think what is inherently natural in me is the ability to get rid of my fear, and that's really how you learn the language mm-hmm. because to learn the language you have to apply it to try it out it's the same with any language you know you can you can uh, learn in books but if you don't just go and try talking to people and even if you fall on your face but just make yourself understood then you're never gonna you're never gonna learn and i think it's not that i have a natural way with harmony or a natural way with it's just that i i I like the process of trying and seeing what happens. I enjoy the process of reaching for places I haven't been. And so because I do that, then 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 I, I expand my comfort zone. And so I keep learning and I keep learning. Because when I listen to stuff from when I was uh, younger, it's like, wow, I can't believe that I'm still growing. And I still am, you know, and it's never ending. It's not like, oh, I had it since I was l- young and then... I always knew everything. No.
0: As you describe music as a language, and you grew up, I'm assuming, at least bilingual, maybe more than two languages. Maybe mm-hmm. the sort of familiarity of, as you say, taking chances as you learn, putting yourself out there fearlessly. You know, maybe you had a little bit of a familiarity with that feeling because you had already had to live in multiple places and in multiple languages.
2: Yeah, I had to adapt, readapt every time. <laughs> the language thing, for me, you know, I, I grew up with two languages so those were not a challenge but yeah the the ability to readapt and to go with the flow you know and to to want to explore the the wanting exploration and wanting improvisation that's that's how you learn the language for me a lot of my students I mean all of my students it's not about the sound of the voice or the technique or the theory it's not at all about that. It's about getting out of your own way. Yeah. It's about letting the music happen because we're really the, the only obstacle.
0: Mm-hmm. Again, I love that you say once you learn these songs, you can go anywhere in the world and play them with other musicians. It's, it's a key that opens a lot of doors. At a certain point, did you start to think about the words that you were singing, what these songs mean, and, and how to inject your own experience into them or what they represented to you
2: it's funny that you ask this question because actually i didn't until <laughs> much later at first i kind of learned them almost phonetically you know and then i came to america and i was four years at a school where i was the only singer there was no talk about lyrics at <laughs> all it was all you know yeah jazz harmony and um and so i was just picking songs in how much swinging they are you know <laughs> And then when I came out of college, one day someone showed me Bob Dylan. I had never heard Bob Dylan. And I was like, wow. This is also, you know, after four years, I, I spoke English better. Yeah. And, and I was just so impressed in the power of the lyrics because I was like, wow, this guy can't sing. But it's so beautiful.
1: <laughs> Once upon a time, you dressed so fine. Through the of dime in your prime
2: And so then I went back to my book, you know, my repertoire and just reassessed all all the songs I was singing. And now, you know, and since then I've come a long way. I have fell in love with Steven Sondheim because of lyrics and Now, for me, lyrics are the most important thing. Yes. Because when, especially when I'm like taking a cover, you know, I can change the harmony. I can reharm. I can change the groove. I can change the tempo. I can interpret the melody as I want, but the lyrics are going to stay. Yes. And so for me, it's very important to sing lyrics that I believe in, that I, that I feel I can discover myself through them. Yes. Every single time I sing the same song, I discover things about myself that Hmm. I didn't know.
0: What were some of the songs or kinds of songs that you let go of after you started thinking about what the lyrics were?
2: (laughs) I mean, it's not let go, but just, you know, you go through phases, especially with standards. It's like, oh, these days, this is my favorite standard. I had a time where Love for Sale was my favorite standard, and I don't really connect with it anymore, as I did when I didn't really know the lyrics or care about the lyrics. Yeah, just, you know, songs also that I feel maybe... I'm not in a position to sing them, like Summertime. Hmm. I used to sing that one a lot. I really go through phases with which are my favorite songs and which are the songs that I'm sick of.
0: Why do you say you're not in a position to sing a song like Summertime?
2: Because I don't know about the cotton fields. I don't know about that reality, you know?
0: So let's talk about what happened when you came to the States after you graduated from college then, because then you put in a bunch of years here, you know, like on the scene, doing the thing. And you also did some competitions. You know, you put yourself in the line of fire and won a few and had some funny experiences too. But tell me about that experience of just like putting yourself out there in the States when you moved here.
2: You know, after college, me and five of my buddies from school, from class, uh, you know, all boys, uh, we moved to a little apartment in in Crown Heights, Brooklyn, uh, in a three bedroom. And there was six of us. And yeah, we just looked on Craigslist every day for jobs. I had a a, a weekly gig in Soho every Saturday night, three sets, three one-hour sets in a restaurant, Mm -hmm. and it was just uh, bass, drums, and me. Wow. And that taught me so much. I did it for seven years every Saturday. Mm -hmm. I started doing it while I was in college. I would go up, you know, on the weekend.
0: Where'd you go to college, Cyril?
2: Purchase college it was uh, f- kind of far from the city so what i would do because the you know the the last train from grand central is at 1 yeah and that's when the jam session starts at yeah. smalls so i would go to the jam sessions sleep on a couch in fat cats and then wait for the first train the 6am train to go back to to white plains <laughs> so i did a lot of that and yeah that that gig in the cupping room definitely gave me a kind of a, a great point to start, a, you know, to, to make myself known because when it's weekly, people come and then they come the next time, they bring their friends and, and I started selling CDs too. And yeah, and I had a bunch of little odd jobs, you know, being living in, in Manhattan, which is such a high rent. Yeah. And I did those competitions and little by little, I, I started touring, started Traveling for gigs, and so I couldn't do the the Soho gig anymore.
0: Who did you live with in Crown Heights?
2: So I lived with Wayne Tucker. Wayne Tucker, great trumpet player, really great records. Wayne Tucker, uh, Bill Todd, who's a saxophone player, Tom Larson, who's a guitar player, Anthony Thornton, who's a drummer. Matt Simons, who's a saxophone player, but now he's a famous pop singer.
0: Oh yeah, you recorded that duet with him, right? Each day on one of your albums.
2: Each day brings someone who that lights
1: up your way, and I don't think you knew when you met me that May. Each day brings someone who takes my breath away, and I don't think you knew I would ask you to stay. Oh.
0: And you're all crowded into this little apartment.
2: Yeah, I had my own room. Matt had his own room. Tommy and Wayne lived in in the third bedroom. And Anthony and Bill lived in the living room.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's romantic in retrospect, but I imagine it was not so romantic at the time.
2: I mean, you know, they're my family. We're still super friends. They're the ones that when I first came to America and became really tight friends with them, I brought them all to Europe to to, um, I don't know how you say, to busk. Yeah. We like, we rode on the trains and, and slept on, on parks, benches and beaches and, and busked all through Italy and Spain. And that was like their first time doing anything like that. What I remember was the hardest was not living with the, the boys. The hardest was just trying to make the rent every month. And then just, it's, it, it, I remember it felt like climbing a mountain every month and then giving the rent is like falling. Ah, <laughs> Back like. to
0: the bottom. <laughs> yeah. Like Sisyphus.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Did you feel more French after you left France?
2: I mean, you know, when you're the only foreigner in your class and everyone sees you as the French one, it kind of almost is an identity that stuck to you. Mm. One thing I realized for sure is that I I liked cheese. I didn't know how good cheese was until I came to America. And I was like, oh man, what is this? (laughs) You know, cheese and bread. In that sense, I'm very French for the food. But when I'm in France, I don't feel French. When you're a mixed Mm -hmm. culture, you're kind of your own thing, you know? Yeah, of, of course, I feel French uh, in many ways, you know, um, I feel like the, the American culture, you know how when you travel, there's culture clash. And I remember when I first went to India, the culture clash is immediate. It's in your, it's in your face, it's in your nose, it's in everything around you. And America seems very familiar. It seems very familiar because you see it on TV, you hear it on the, on the news and, and, you know, it's, it's everywhere. But it's a culture clash that kind of creeps up on you very subtly. Once it's there, it's one of the biggest culture clashes. It's really, yeah, there's, there's things uh, that are starting more and more to become difficult for me to, to connect with that culture.
0: I often feel when people come from outside of the United States and they, they want to visit famous American cities, mm-hmm. that so many of the places that people imagine visiting are in their own way, not really representative of America. I no. mean, New York is kind of its own place and San Francisco is too. And Miami certainly is. And so is new Orleans. And in in a way, new Orleans may be the, the least kind of typical American city that you could end up in. And so maybe, you know, that's part of what attracted you to it is that it's like,
2: for sure. It's its own thing. I mean, I was I had been living for in New York for twelve years, yeah. you know, including the purchase years. And I was ready to leave. I was looking at other places like Portugal. I wanted to be in a place where I don't speak the language, yeah. to you know, maybe learn a new language. I wanted to be somewhere where it's warm and I just was done with New York but I didn't know really where to go. And with some friends, well two of the guys I was living with, Wayne and, and Tom, we just took a little tr- weekend trip to new orleans just for fun and in those 3 days i completely fell in love with the with the city it's really the only thing that's keeping me in united states is is new orleans it's it's a bubble it's very different the people are very different the people are so real so generous with their time and with their home and um yeah just the pace is different, the colors everywhere. And, you know, and it's, you know, it's a mix of French and Caribbean. Like you. Exactly. Which is, you know, I feel very, very much at home there.
0: Yeah. After putting in all the time in New York, which is a very intense musical scene, you know, and you describe staying up all night at this session at Smalls and wanting to do that and be part of a community of musicians who are all kind of have come from all over the world to devote themselves to the craft of this music. You end up in New Orleans, which I don't know well, but in my imagination of it, the music is much more alive in the streets there and kind of belongs not just to the chosen few who devote themselves to it and stay up all night at Smalls, but kind of to everybody.
2: It's exactly that. It's exactly that, Leo. It's it's a music f- by the people for the people. <laughs> and, and for me, what. Uh, I really connected with is it reminded me of the gypsies. Yeah. It completely reminded me of that. The reason they make music is not to be number one or to make money or to be famous. The reason people make music is because it's what they do the same as eating or breathing. It's just part of life. And whether you're a musician or not, music is a big, important part of your life. And yeah, uh, new Orleans is, is very special in, in that way. And also they're very proud of their city, very proud of their culture in a way that they just really want you to come and enjoy and embrace it. So I was welcomed open arms and yeah, and the musician community over there is very different. It's very there's so many gigs, there's just hmm. so much music that you know, musicians are giving gigs to each other. Very different energy, you know, yeah. than the hustle of New York. Yeah, New York became difficult. I felt like it, you know, number one is making money and then maybe I'll have time to see my friends. It's because it's so hard. It's so difficult. So the level of musicianship is very, very, very high. But the reason why you make music to me was kind of lost.
0: Yeah. So how did your music change after you left New York and started spending time in New Orleans? How did you, what you'd made change, do you think?
2: Well, it's hard to describe in words.
0: Yeah. Maybe it didn't change.
2: No, of course it changed. I change all the time, so my music changes with me, you know? I just haven't, I guess, recorded something yet that... I I mean, I did record an album with the New Orleans Jazz Orchestra.
0: Yeah, you made Petite Fleur, which I, I, I love this record. And I do think, particularly because you have worked so much in that guitar space, I mean, not exclusively, but the record with the New Orleans Orchestra kind of positioned you a little bit differently in a slightly different yeah. sounding space with a different sounding orchestration around you and I really like it. I thought it was very kind of fresh for you.
2: Thank you. qui
1: dans tes yeux Lorsque je tant
2: Yeah, that, that, that was a fun project. I just, I think what mostly changed in my music, because I wouldn't say change, I would mean yeah. say evolve. You okay. know, it's, it's always evolving. It's just the, the musicians I'm playing with, I've been playing with a lot of piano players actually in New Orleans. Just getting to know the incredible people like Nick Payton, Herlin Riley, Dave Torkinowski is just uh, you know, that's been that's been a a lesson. Yeah. In itself.
0: I saw this song that you recorded with Jonathan Brook called Me Too that yeah. uh I think you wrote part of the song and then there's a recording, I don't know if is that the only recording of it, the one that you did with yeah. Jonathan? Yeah. Tell me about what led you to write that song and, and put that out?
2: Well, you know, it was in the thick of it. And I, I'm very close with my sister, and she, she writes poems. And she, 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 she wrote a poem that really touched me deeply because when you, you know, there's no easy way to learn that your little sister, you know, I mean, we've all gone through this kind of stuff as women, and, uh, and Jonathan and I had been, you know, we had had a, a couple co-writing sessions, which is, which is, which is great because I had never really co- co-written with a woman. Hmm. And so I kind of adapted one of my sister's poems to make a real all-women collaboration. And uh, Jonathan is the wife of my manager, so that's how we know each other. It was really powerful.
1: You're in too deep now. Don't make it worse. Just get your coat and grab your purse. Just do what he says. Don't make him mad. It's just one night and he's not that bad. You'll have to forget how you feel. After all, you both made a deal. You did say yes, but you never. I want you to know me too, me too, me too, me too, me too. I have walked in those shoes with you. Oh, me too, me too, me to me too. Every single one of us
0: too. I'm not fishing. I'm not. I'm not trying to provoke. But it, it raised a question for me that I thought about because clearly you're very sensitive to and we're all constantly trying to navigate these questions of art and behavior and society. You know, you recorded a lot of Michael Jackson songs in your life. And Michael Jackson's repertoire was like, I I don't know if you still play it or not, but it was something that was like really kind of cool the way you integrated it into your world. I went through a thing in the last couple of years where, and Michael was like, it's so important to me. I suffer when I listen to Michael Jackson now because I'm constantly questioning whether or not I somehow shouldn't be, listening to him because I think he maybe did some really horrible things. Hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, about- it's
2: a tough one. Yeah. I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a tough one. I think I think everyone has their own personal relationships with, with these kind of issues. I didn't see the Michael Jackson movie and I, I don't want to see it. You know, when, when I was a little girl and, and my mom would put, bachata, salsa, and merengue in the house, she would put Michael Jackson a lot too. Yeah, We would, me, my mom, and my sister would record on tape his shows so that we could try and do his dance moves because yeah. I've always been, you know, lo- love to dance. So it was almost like, for me, it was mainly a dancer. And I just, you know, he's he made incredible art. You know, he made incredible art. And for me, those are two different things. It's the same thing with... Luis CK. Luis CK is one of my idols. I freaking love his stuff. He, yeah. I think he's he's a genius. Yeah. I think he he's the, the goat. I think he's mm-hmm. he's the best. And I still wrote a song called Me Too. All these things can coexist because actually they do. Yes. A lot of these kind of decisions you have to make on your own, and I feel like a lot of people don't make th- their own decisions. They just go with what seems to be the right thing to do on Instagram which changes all the time you know uh, is it is it not correct to listen to this is it not right to really i think you know make your own decision
1: my doctor, with a fever but nothing he found but the town in the street they said she had a breakdown down someone's always dragging, got my baby crying talking stealing, feeling Say you just wanna be started something. You wanna be started something. Just catch the be started something. I wanna be started something. Just catch the be started something. To be starting something. high get older. To low to get under. You're stuck in the middle and the pain is under.
0: You know you keep talking about how important dance was and that music was for dancing. So many musicians are kind of notorious for being bad dancers. It's like a kind of a cliche. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> you know how, are they related to you? I mean, when you sing, is it does is it like dancing for you?
2: For sure. I mean, if you come see a show of mine, you'll see me dance on stage. Yes. That's how I feel the groove. My instrument is my body. Mm-hmm. If my body is dancing, my instrument's dancing. When I feel the swing in my body, then it comes out in my singing. but yeah, I, I, I uh, was teaching at the Miami Frost University and you know, I have one-on-one classes, but I had one class where I had the whole jazz department, not just the singers, but all the instrumentalists, and I just made them dance. That's what I did.
0: <laughs> and how, how'd they do?
2: They loved it. They had so much fun. It's not about being a good dancer. It's about just feeling it, you know, letting yourself move so that your instrument can feel free to, to be the rhythm.
0: So what did you do for COVID? You went down and built a house without walls?
2: That's what I did. That and also I bought a van, I mean a minivan, a Toyota Sienna. I removed the, the back seats. I built a bed and uh, traveled all, you know, from New Orleans up to New York and then crossed all the way to Yellowstone and then back through Colorado and Utah. Oh, Utah was incredible. I discovered America and it's really different than flying. Yeah, Wow, it's big.
0: It's really big.
2: Wow! Driving for six hours and just nothing, and then all of a sudden, after six hours of nothing, this giant canyon appears out of nowhere. It's incredible.
0: Were you alone or with with somebody? With my boyfriend. Did you talk? Were you in silence? Did you listen to music? What What did you do while you drove?
2: <laughs> yeah, listen to music, talk, sleep. You know.
0: Were you worried about your career, about money, about not being able to do the thing?
2: At the beginning, no. It was kind of cool. It was kind of nice to have a break, to be like in one spot, not have to fly every second. Yeah, it was was really nice also to be some, you know, not a... You know, as musicians, we attach so much of our identity in being a musician, and it's not like a nine-to-five where you're like, okay, work. You know, I'm not a musician anymore. It's five. <laughs> no, you're 24/7. So it was kind of nice to be someone else, to be just surreal, and uh, yeah, I I passed my my real estate certificate. <laughs> Yeah, because there was then a point where I was like not making any money, and I was like, I have to find something to do. I did some Uber deliveries. Oh, wow! Yeah, yeah. I mean, I like to do stuff anyway. Yeah. And uh, and yeah, and then then it got it started getting hard when I came down here and started building, and just the my design became bigger and bigger because you know the pandemic was getting longer and longer, and I was thinking maybe this is a good place to live actually. Yeah. yeah. I built a, a room that's like for instruments, you know, that traps the humidity out. And But then, yeah, then I was like, I need to make money. I'm glad tour picked back yeah, this year because I, I needed it.
0: I mean, it's funny that you, you know, you were like, oh, finally I can be off the road. I, I don't have to be on the road all the time. And the first thing you did is bought a van and took yourself on the road. It wasn't for gigs, but you still went on the road.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's difficult. I have like the the bug of the moving bug. yeah you know i always loved traveling but being on the road is not the same as as traveling exploring because yeah. you're not on your own clock you have a strict schedule with lobby calls every day and you have to pack and unpack every single day and there's a lot of hurry up and wait mm-hmm. at the airport and the whatever and it, it's just not the same and you're carrying you know a bunch of gear and cds whereas you know my favorite trips were just a little backpack yeah. going to Thailand for a month just by myself with barely any possessions and seeing what happens not having a schedule that's it's very different
0: yes you know you said this thing earlier about how you know your instrument is your body so mm-hmm. singing dancing presenting whatever it is it's, it's all kind of part of it you can't okay. hide behind a guitar or a, i mean you do play but you don't hide behind a drum set or a saxophone or whatever it is it's it's you and the audience Mm
1: -hmm. and
0: when i talk to singers i'm often struck by how much life is coming through the music in a way that i don't always hear when i talk to other instrumentalists you know when you talk to incredible practitioners of the bass or the drums or or whatever who are brilliant fantastic people thoughtful philosophers and wonderful but i don't often feel that same thing that i feel from you where it's like you want to know about the music it's about my life, you know? I mean, it's, I'm transmitting my life through this instrument and that's what's happening.
2: Oh, it's very different. Uh, You know, first of all, we're storytellers. Uh, We put ourselves out there. You know, like you said, we're not hiding behind a a piece of furniture. (laughs) You know, we have direct, the the channel is direct to, to to the divine. You know, when people say, Uh, you know, when you're scatting, are you trying to be like a a trombone or a saxophone? I'm like, not at all. The trombone or the saxophone is trying to sound like the voice. Mm. It's the opposite. The instrumentalist is trying to sing. The instrumentalist is trying to practice so much so that, so that the drums become an elongation of his body so that the instrument becomes part of him. That's why they have to practice so much. That's why they're, you know, they become great technicians because they, they have to. It's not as direct as, as the voice.
0: People ask you, are you trying to imitate the sound of another instrument? You say, no, they're trying to imitate the sound of the voice or get closer to the, the connection of the voice.
2: Mm-hmm. On
0: the other hand there are so many great soloists who are speaking the language. I mean, did you, oh, yeah, did totally. you, did you relate to certain soloists? or Oh, certain- I
2: transcribed a ton, yeah. especially during my years at, at Purchase College, yeah. you know, I would go to the library and take six CDs from the library and burn them to my computer and then do the same thing the next day. And yeah, I just, I got really, really into, well, the first thing that knocked my socks off, you know, coming from, From my little village where all I knew was Django and Stefan Grappelli and now Ella. I came to New York and the first assignment they gave us was to go buy Kind of Blue Mm. and listen to it. You hadn't heard it. I hadn't heard it. Yeah. And I was completely blown away. And so then I learned every note on that record. And so then from that, I had to branch out and check out Miles' other stuff and check out Bill Evans' other stuff. And also Paul Chambers'. I was fascinated by Paul Chambers. He's the one that actually made me realize how how deep, uh, you know, like, because when you're uh, a singer also, some some improvised music can sound like, can get over your head, you know? At first when I heard Giant Steps and like, I was like, wow, that's too many notes, it yeah. goes too fast. Yeah. And then one day I put on my headphones and I listened to the whole record and just focused on PC, just listen to the bass. And I it's like by understanding that I understood everything yes. that was above it. Yeah. So so yeah, I got really deep in instrumentalists. I, I I got really uh, you know, love piano trios, the Matt Jamal or Oscar Peterson trios, Harold Garner, and yeah, there's some definitely some Desert Island records in all of those.
0: When you are learning a new song or bringing a new song into your repertoire, I mean, you played that restaurant gig where it sounds like you've got a chance to play so many songs. I mean, that's a lot of songs ah, to have.
2: so many songs,
0: yeah. As you're learning your way in or, or familiarizing yourself with a song, are you thinking about the harmony or are you thinking about the melody? How do you approach improvising over, over the songs that you blow over?
2: So I don't read music. I went four years at Purchase College pretending that I could read music. Uh, Because when I arrived there, you know, I guess in America, a lot of people do high school jazz band. Yeah. And so all my classmates knew how to read. And I arrived and the teacher was like, okay, so A flat minor 7 over G. And I was like, A flat, which one is that? Do, Mm. de, mi, fa, sol, la. And by the time I knew what he was talking about, he was already on some other shit. Yep. And so I just stopped even trying and I just relied on my ears. Yeah. And I would see if the little note went up or down and just listen. So my ears have been trained very much. So, so much listening. And, and so when I'm learning a song, really, what I have to like put time in learning is the lyrics. And yeah. while I'm learning the lyrics, I learn the melody, and while I'm learning the melody, I hear the harmony. It's kind of all aligned, you know? It's it's kind of like I learned a song uh, horizontally, and as I'm learning it horizontally, I'm learning everything vertically that comes with that.
0: Yes. I can hear that, and I mean that in the best way. I mean, when I hear you <laughs> improvising and scatting over—and even just fra- changing phrasing and changing melody when you sing— it feels very natural. It doesn't feel intellectual and it doesn't feel particularly studied. It feels the same way it feels when people are having a conversation, you know?
1: Uh-huh. Yeah.
0: It's like this is what I sound like when I talk right now.
1: Yeah. Let's get live.
2: But that's to me the funnest that's yeah. to me the work is not in learning the harmony to me the work is in being as honest as possible yeah and 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 it's a hard but so you know so giving kind of work it's really a beautiful work because it's it's not just musically to me my music uh, approach and my life approach is the same yes you know i want to be an honest person i want to Listen to myself, to what wants to come out of me in life and, also, and in music. And, and to me, there's not a big, uh, a big difference between the two.
0: What do you do to remove fear and dishonesty from the way you live and the way you sing?
2: I try to listen to what I want, to listen to my, my instincts. You know, like, for example, coming to the jungle getting away from music, getting away from music and into silence and letting all the shit come up, uh, you know, that's part of the work. But more concretely, when I'm on stage, it's really about, because, you know, I'm not a Buddha. I'm not always there, you know. There's many times on stage where I'm in my head and I'm like, ah, this sucks or think about the next tune or whatever. And for me, the work is to catch myself that I'm in my head That's the first thing. And then bring myself back to the moment. And and there's many tricks, but in general, things that will bring you back in the moment is focusing on anything else than you. So focusing on what the guitar player is doing, focusing on the lyrics, focusing on... You're in your head, so you're like, okay, I'm in my head, I'm going to use my head to find a trick to get me out of that, and then I'm, I'm back, back. So it's either focusing on something else than you, or putting yourself in a challenging position, you know, like hmm. going for a, a weird note that you would not go for. And then as soon as you're in that weird note, you're back in like unknown territory and you have to be present. You can't be an autopilot because you don't know where you are.
0: Yes. And you're, so then you have to recover.
2: Yeah. And so you're exploring new territory and even the band is like, Whoa, okay, where where, where hmm. is she going? You know, and and so it's it's kind of this back and forth that we have. Just like in life, you know, when we get angry and we're like, we're not there, we're we going to come back. Look, everything is fine. Uh, so, yeah, it's, a, it's a back and forth. And the, the, the work is to have longer periods of being present and short of periods of not.
0: Yes. Did you go through any period where you were trying to sound like somebody else? I mean, you know, I don't hear you describing any part of your development musically where you didn't know what you sounded like. It sounds like you opened your mouth on that bus and sang with the gypsies and you heard a sound that is you. Do you think that your style was kind of there? or Did you have to develop
2: it? I'm still developing it. I mean, if you hear a recording of when I was that age, like, what, 15... I don't sound at all like now. Really? Oh, not at all. Even like the the other day I had a gig with the with the Palermo Jazz Orchestra and so I had to like dust off these recordings of big band that I did 10 years ago with the Chicago Jazz Orchestra. And I was listening to it and I had a pang of tenderness for my little child self. Ooh, what a little
1: What a little moonlight can do to you You're in love Your hearts are fluttering all day long You only stutter cause your poor tongue Just will not utter the words I love you What a little moonlight can do
2: to you I never thought of what my style is because your style is going to be your style for just this moment. And Then it's going to be something else. Then you're going to make a record and then you're going to like it for a year and then you're going to hate it and you're going to want to do something else. And so what I feel like my sound is, my style, is just me looking for who I am in this moment. That's the, the only constant, is that I'm always going to be searching. But it's always going to change, it's always going to evolve, you know, because of the people I meet, because of the musicians I play with, because of the songs I fall in love with, because of the places I go. And so you want to let all that affect you, your being, and affect your music, therefore. You, you don't want to stay stuck in, okay, that's what I do, that's my style, and mm. you want to see where it takes you. I recorded a, a Stephen Sondheim record. I didn't know anything about musical theater. And I went there because I didn't know anything about it.
0: Mm -hmm. You describe your job as being so much about that search, being in the moment and constantly searching for yourself. Where does the audience fit into that calculus? Mm -hmm. How do you think about audiences in the process of searching for yourself?
2: If you're honest on the stage, you give permission to the people in front of you to be honest, to be themselves. If you are you and you are 100% you, not hiding, you give permission to everyone else around to be themselves and to not hide. And just like I said in that bus, what really struck me was how I can make people feel good with music. That's my goal really is to touch people and to to be as, as, you know, to kind of to do the work of being presence, to, to kind of... Get that energy across.
0: What are you going to do next?
2: I'm going to Europe this summer. But uh, next, I have a record that I just finished with Jake Sherman. Wonderful. Uh Uh-huh. That I'm extremely excited about it because we started recording it five years ago when I was still living in New York. And then I moved and I think the reason why... It's been dragging on is because it's original songs. And that's, that's where my work is now, where that was the hardest thing for me. You know, I've been singing other people's songs for years, you know, very old songs that have had the stamp of approval many times. And so it's been a process for me to accept that I'm a songwriter. Yeah. And so, and so we started this record five years ago with a couple songs and in this journey of the jungle and the pandemic I've been writing a lot and so we just finished it two months ago we finished the whole record with new songs and finished the old ones and it just like They marry perfectly, and I'm very excited about it. I am so
0: curious about that. Right. I mean, I forgot. That's how we connected was after I talked to Jake. We started chatting about that, and I remember thinking, God, how did— Uh-huh. I I mean, I just assume people know each other whatever, but it didn't occur to me that you've been working together.
2: Yeah. We've known each other for a while, but we—yeah, we never—I mean, yeah, we started working together five years ago.
0: And what is the music like?
2: It's very different. Yeah. It's very different than anything I've ever done. It's all originals. There's two covers. I played uh, the, the baritone uke on a, yeah. on a few songs. And also the way we worked is, you know, a lot of my records, I came in the studio with the band and, okay, one, two, one, two, three, let's do it. But this was just Jake and me in the studio for hours and hours, figuring out together the form of the song. Uh, and then, you know, he'll put a click track and I'll play the uke. And then it's his turn. He's going to put down the bass and then... We look for sounds and layer voices. And so we worked on this re- record very, uh, yeah, very ver- vertically, yeah. very produced. So very different than anything I've ever done.
0: And what about the material, the subject matter, what you're singing about and what you chose to write about? How did that come out?
2: There's a lot of different subjects. There's a song there that to me is very strong. It's a song about abortion. There's some songs about the jungle, actually. It's a collection of songs I wrote throughout the years, so there's a little a bit of everything.
0: I mean, you said this is your path now. This is your journey now is to write, to be performing your yeah. own songs. Do you learn things about yourself by writing songs?
2: Yeah. I learned how scared I am to write songs. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you made an album of Stephen Sondheim's material a year and a half before he died. Yeah. The timing's I mean, close. yeah, of
2: course. I thought What I thought mostly was I can't believe I got to meet him. Yeah. That was really special.
0: What did he think of the project?
2: He loved it. He came to Birdland to watch me perform it twice. He sat in the front row. He was crying the whole time.
1: Loving you is not a choice. It's who I am. Loving you is not a choice. And not much reason to rejoice. But it gives me purpose gives me voice to say to the world this is why I live you are why I live
0: what was that like what did that feel like for you
2: that was you know for me it was not as scary as it if if I if I knew yeah. if I was in the musical that that's yeah. I think what saved me with this record is that I was not in that world. Yes. And so I took risks. I totally like completely rearranged his stuff, and then later I, I kind of you know learned more and more that that yeah you know Steven Sondheim is like you don't fuck with his songs. Yeah. And, and I think because I was so daring. Yeah. He just had never seen that. Just a bunch of kids up on the stage blowing on his tune like having fun and grooving and dancing like just i guess it was kind of new to him and he was yeah he was he really really loved it
0: when is the record with Jake coming out
2: i don't know i don't have a date we're still like we're mixing right now so it's super fresh
0: Man, I wish I would have known. I would like to hold this and so I can put it out when we when the record's coming out, but I don't know if it's not if it's gonna be a super long time, then I won't hold it because I wanna I wanna put it out. It might
2: own. be long. It okay. might be a long time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I wanna like I wanna really do it right. I wanna make some videos yeah. and
0: Surreal MA, thank you for doing it right with me this afternoon, telling me something.
2: Thank of the story.
0: you. There she was, my friends, the enchanting Surreal MA. I'll be looking. Mm. I'll be back in your headspace with another deep dive before you know it. Until then, I'll talk to you soon, and I'll be seeing you.
1: And I'll be seeing you.
0: This has been a WBGO Studios production. To learn more about WBGO Studios' award-winning podcasts, special concerts, live streams, and more, visit wbgo.org studios.